right, welcome friends in the room, friends of Fort Worth. How about Kanye starting us out? Let's go, man. College Dropout was the greatest album Kanye had before Yeezy, before Kim. Just good old days. Hey, anyone fly a lot for their job in here? Good, three of you. Uh, I'm gonna start with a flying story that happened not long ago with our family. Um, we'd, uh, basically, when you travel with kids, it's kind of a nightmare, and by kind of, I mean entirely, especially if you're getting on a plane, and the day had come, and we had kind of packed everything up, and uh, the reason it's kind of a nightmare is, one, because you're that person on the plane with the screaming child, and two, you're trying to like just do uh, like, like um, Frogger, essentially, through the airport with kids who are running all over the place, and, and so the day had come, we'd packed up all the bags, in addition to one of the challenges is you have like 95 extra things. The days of like, hey, I got to carry on, we'll be good, we'll figure it out, are over. So you're packing like a child seat, you're bringing all these different things. And this day had come, we were going on a trip with family, got our kids there, we got to the airport, we've got everything kind of locked in. And we had stuffed as much as possible into as few bags as possible, because I think we were flying like Spirit Airlines, which charge you for like breathing. They're like, hey, you feel your limit. It's 50 cents from now on, and you're wearing shoes. That's $20 more. And so we were trying to like save on, in terms of like the bag of stuff. We stuffed everything in there. We get to the airport. We're beginning to go through the check-in process, get the bags checked in. We got the kids. They're kind of running everywhere. Throw the bag up on the scale. I had already weighed the bag at home to make sure, hey, I'm going to be below 50 pounds. Throw the bag on the scale. Somehow in the car, my bag gained three pounds. No idea how. <laughs> lady looks at me. She's like, this is 53 pounds. You got to do something with three it's like, oh, come on, lady. We got like kids running all around us. Can we just, can we just look the other way? What's it really going to do? And she goes, no, you need to move things around. So we have to take that bag off. Then you have to weigh the other bag to be like, how much margin do we have to work with here? And so we take that off. We get that bag out. And we realize, man, we don't have a ton of margin to work with. We got to get rid of these three pounds. We begin going through. And, and here's the worst part of this whole situation if you've been to the airport before. No one is ever at the airport with like tons of time to spare, right? No one... Unless you're like psychotic, it's like, you know, I love to spend a good afternoon in the airport. And so I like to get there early, take my time, enjoy the Starbucks. And so you're always like in a hurry. And so they're like, hey, you got to get three pounds out. There's 150 people behind you. She's basically like, hey, you got to get your stuff out of there. You're opening up your bag. Your underwear is falling out in front of all these strangers in front of you. And you're like, what weighs three pounds? Does the shoe weigh three pounds? What should I get rid of that's going to weigh three pounds? Because I got to get less than that in here. So we're going through that whole process of trying to figure out how to get the weight on the scale because they're saying, hey, that's too much weight. We will not allow that to pass through. You need to make sure that you do something with that. So we're taking out shoes, stuffing them into our backpack, trying to get everything below the weight limit. And the reason I start there is because tonight we're going to talk about a subject that is related to the idea that I think when it comes to God, and particularly having a relationship with God, there are many people in our world, and many Christians, sadly, or people who think that they're Christians, who think that God operates a little bit like the check-in clerk at the airport, that, hey, you're going to bring your baggage in here, but let me make sure you know there is a weight limit. And so if you bring too much baggage in, you're on your own. You're either going to have to carry that on to the airport or you're going to have to pay an additional fee or fine. That if you bring too much baggage in, that God's going to cut you out of that relationship or it's going to cost you. And not only that, we often think that as it relates to like our baggage in life, there are certain things that weigh certain sins, if you will, that weigh more than other sins. And nobody would articulate it exactly like that. 
But we often think that, hey, there's certain sins that if, you know, if your baggage is just kind of jealousy and gossip and, you know, occasional speeding and, you know, maybe you had too much to drink at prom, it's not that big of a deal. But if it includes adultery, oh, man, that's going to put you over the limit. If it includes abortion, homosexuality, if it includes any of the more serious, like, that's just too much weight, you're going to have to either pay more or it's gonna cost you, and you're gonna have to kind of work some of that off, or you're not gonna be allowed in. Tragically, Christians often even contribute to this. Where there's this idea, for whatever reason, a lot of people like think of our sins as though there's like a scale, and certain sins weigh more than other sins. And so, you know, pornography or addiction or alcoholism, like that's, that's gonna be a really heavy bag. You gotta deal with that, or you're not getting in. But some other sins that are just kind of, you know, the occasional lying, you cheated on your algebra test one time, that's not that big of a deal. And what we're gonna talk about tonight and explore and study and discover is that our idea of a scale and this idea that, hey, there's a certain baggage limit and there's a certain type of sin or different sins that really put you over the limit of the reach of God is totally false. That the Bible says that God doesn't operate like humans think, that there's kind of this scale of sins and this is really intense and if you do these types of things, you're really far from God and you gotta work your way back. That he doesn't operate like that at all. And we're gonna discover in a story in Luke chapter 19 how Jesus approaches really sinful people and do so by looking at one of the most notorious sinful people in all of the New Testament and the interaction that Jesus had with them. We're kicking off a series called Jesus Walks, where for the next six weeks, we're gonna look at certain interactions and exchanges that Jesus, while he was on the planet, he would walk up to different people, and he would have an exchange that would totally blow the paradigm of usually the person he was talking to, and certainly everyone around him, and the disciples, they were always confused, and how Jesus, who came to this planet to correct humanity's perspective on what God is like shows up and he says the the scale that everyone has is off. The way that God sees humanity is not the way that you think God sees humanity. So we're gonna jump into Luke chapter 19. If you have a Bible, you can flip open there. We're gonna look at a very famous man whose name was Zacchaeus. Now, if you grew up in church, there's a song that uh, goes along with Zacchaeus. Anyone know this song? Zacchaeus was a what? (laughs) <laughs> oh, man, whoever came up with that, dude, hopefully they're getting royalties because that thing went viral. He was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He sat up in a sycamore tree. Some of you guys haven't been in church in like 10 years, but you have got this one on lock. You know it better than Kanye's Jesus Walk song. To see what he, so Here's the problem with that song, just before we dive in, because that song sanitizes who Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus was not a good guy. He wasn't a guy that people would be like, oh, little Zach, a little cutie right there. He wasn't a guy that we today would look at and be like, oh, man, that guy, just love how Jesus is going after him. Zacchaeus was a borderline criminal. He was a guy that didn't have a good reputation of the day and one of the most notorious sinners of his day. And so we're gonna dive in and look at Jesus' exchange, and, and I'll explain more what I'm talking about here in a second, but we'll start in verse one of chapter 19. And if you don't have a Bible, the verses will be on the screen. There's also Bibles in the Welcome Center. That's our gift to do if you'd like one. We'll jump in right here. Now, Jesus entered Jericho, and he made his way through the town. 
There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. So here's what happens. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. That's kind of the timeline. He's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. That's where we are in the story, if you will. And he's walking through, and on the way there, there's a town named Jericho. Jericho, here's all you gotta know. It is like Beverly Hills in Palestine. It is the wealthy, uh, it's where the wealthy would live. It was only the richest of the rich. People got vacation homes there. It's like San Diego in that it's 70 degrees year-round. Like one of the commentators or historians writes, hey, Jericho was such a nice place because you could wear linens all year-round. That's your thing. And just the point being that, hey, it was a very, uh, like, consistent 70 degrees Palm trees are everywhere, so only the elite of the elite. And inside of this town, there's a man named Zacchaeus. And we're told something that would have made his audience or would have made the original readers go, what? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And not just any tax collector, chief tax collector. What does that mean? Is that like the IRS? Because nobody's big fans of the IRS. Is that what he's trying to say? No. There's really not exactly a modern equivalent today. It would be like the IRS if the IRS was known for cheating and robbing you out of your money, hopefully they're not, and the money that they were using was financing an oppressive army. And it would only be Jewish men and women who said, you know what, dude, I'm deuces on God. I really don't believe this whole thing anymore. I don't believe the Jewish faith. I'm out on that, and the Roman army is gonna pay me to be a tax collector, and I can charge people whatever I want if I'm a tax collector, so yeah, I'll do that. So he was seen as a traitor. This would be like uh, a Jewish person in Nazi Germany saying, you know what, I'm not really a fan of any of these other people too, so I'll work for you guys. Zacchaeus was a hated person. And we're not told he was just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector, that he had not been doing this for a month, a year, 10 years maybe, 20 years. He had worked his way up. He had tax collectors working for him. He was a man who was known for ripping people off, and he was extremely wealthy. So here's what you know about him. He was hated. He was feared, because you bump into him, he can take anything you have. He can tax you above and beyond, and he was incredibly rich. His only friends would have been other tax collectors. He's the dude who's driving around. He's got the Lambo. He's got you know, the houses everywhere. He's wearing the nicest clothes, only eats the best food, has an unreal house. One person said, this is the wealthiest person in the New Testament, Zacchaeus. And I'm pointing all that out because a lot of times we think of Zacchaeus as like, man, he's like the prostitute and the marginalizers. Jesus again going after the guy. That, oh, I love that about Jesus. This would have been like, Jesus, why would you have any interest in this man? He's the guy who took my grandma's retirement savings away. He's the guy who's ruined lives. And Jesus comes along and they're about to have an exchange together. Now he, that's speaking of Zacchaeus, verse three, tried to get a look at Jesus but he was too short to see over the crowd. So Jesus is walking through. By this time, Jesus is really famous because we're told earlier, uh, shortly before this, he had raised a guy from the dead. And something happens when you raise people from the dead, as I'm sure you know. Your popularity kind of goes through the roof. And uh, so everywhere he goes now, there's like the crowds falling and there's a parade that begins to form as Jesus is walking through. They've heard this man, Jesus, is coming. And Zacchaeus is too short, we're told. He can't really see. And he's looking through the crowd. So here's what he does. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he called him by name, Zacchaeus. He said, quick, come down. I must be a guest at your home today. 
Zacchaeus quickly calmed down and took Jesus into his house with great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. They said, he, speaking of Jesus, has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumble. So Jesus, he's going through the parade. Zacchaeus is kind of getting up, wondering what he's going to look like. And all of a sudden, he's looking down at the parade, Zacchaeus, from the tree. And he sees this man. Everyone's gathered around to see Jesus. And Jesus stops the parade. And he looks up in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, what was that moment like? A total stranger shows up from out of town, and he knows your name. And he says, come down. I'm going to spend my rest of the day with you. I'm going into your house. What that basically meant in that time would be like, hey, I'm associating with you. I want to have a relationship with you. And the crowd reacts like many of us would react. What are you doing? Do you not know who this person is? Do you not know what home you're going into? Do you not know how he paid for the home you're about to go into? This is Jesus coming through town. He goes into Hugh Hefner's home. He's the guy that I want to spend time with in this whole city. He doesn't talk to anybody but Zacchaeus. The first idea really we see from this, and really the three points that I'm going to give you tonight, my biggest fear is that these are truths that are so tremendously important, and yet for many of you, they're going to fall on deaf ears because you've heard them, and, but you really haven't embraced them. But the first idea that we see from this interaction of Jesus saying, hey, before you do anything right, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to be with you, is simply that your sin doesn't keep Christ from seeking you. Your sin, anyone else's sin, sin in general, is not a barrier for Christ to come and have a relationship with you. This was not just a wee little man. This was a wicked little man. And Jesus, before anything had been done right in Zacchaeus' life, says, I want to have a relationship with you. I'm coming in to spend time with you before you get anything right in your life. You're the one that I want to spend and have a relationship with. I know there's many of you in the room, you think that there's a barrier between God wanting to know you, seeking after you, having a relationship with you because of sin in your past, sin in your present, that there's a God who's there, that your behavior today or your behavior in your past is a barrier for him. But the truth of the Bible is your sin does not keep Christ from seeking after you. Christ was far more interested in seeking Zacchaeus than Zacchaeus was in seeing him. And he said, I'm going into your house today. Oftentimes, it seems like we're, we're so like bent to be like, dude, if I'm going to have a relationship with God, I really need to get things in order in my life. And it's kind of like this. This past weekend, we had a, a birthday party for my one-year-old daughter. It was her birthday. And so it was at our house. We planned it all out. And, um, and we realized like the day before, man, we need to clean this place. We have family friends coming over, family in our community coming over. And so for the next like for eight hours straight, I mean, we are cleaning this entire house. We're putting candles in rooms that have never seen candles before. My wife is like getting out brownies and baking. We haven't baked brownies maybe ever in this house. We're cleaning everything. It's as though we're like, hey, we need to make this place look like no one has ever lived here before. So we're cleaning. We're throwing pillows on different stuff. If it can't be shoved in a closet and it's in the way clutter, it's like just throw it in the trash. We need to get this stuff out of here. There's people coming over here to see us. True story, we got a babysitter so that we could clean. How embarrassing is that? It was like, man, this is, this is terrible. And this was our closest friends and family. It was like the people who are closest to us in the world, we need to pretend that our life is a lot more in order than possible. So people are coming over. There's music on. Let me light this candle. I'm in an apron just baking over here. Hey, how are you? And uh, yeah, this is just like our life. This is always what it looks like. And how ridiculous is that? That despite being the closest people that we have a relationship with, there's part of us that like feels like, man, we need, to, we need to pretend that kind of our life is in order and this is all great. 
And sadly, that is how a lot of people think when it comes to God. That, hey, you've got to get life in order. If God's going to come have a relationship with you, if you're going to really experience um, knowing Jesus, that you first need to clean yourself up. You need to make sure things are in order. You need to put things and just kind of keep them in the closet of your past before God wants to come in and have a relationship with you. The message of Zacchaeus, or really this story that we're looking at, is that before anything had changed, Jesus said, I've been seeking after you. Before anything changes in your life, in your world, Jesus has been seeking after you, and you don't have to pretend. Just like you don't, shouldn't have to pretend with family and friends, like, hey, this is what's going on. The God who's there knows everything. And it's crazy that there's still some part of us that feels like I have to pretend. Like, what do I mean by that? I mean, the desire to kind of seem like, uh, you know, God, I'm worthy of your love can manifest itself in all kinds of ways. Like some of you, you pray weird because you're trying to impress God. Have you ever been around someone like this? Like all of a sudden they're like, hey, I feel like I just need to downshift into King James Version. And they're just beginning to pray. Or, you know, like the uh, way that you pray is, you, you, it's basically like you're reading the Declaration of Independence. It's like, well, our Father, we owe these truths to be self-evident. And, <laughs> and you're like trying to almost be impressive as though that's why God wants to listen or would listen. Others of you, you feel like you can't come to church after you got wasted on Saturday night. You're like, I gotta give a little space, let this thing breathe a little bit. I feel like I you know, haven't behaved in a way that God really would wanna have anything to do with me. Some of you, you're not reading your Bible because you're looking at pornography consistently and it just fills you with shame and you continue on the cycle. Shame can manifest itself in all kinds of ways. Some of you, maybe you feel like God if he's there, doesn't want to have anything to do with you because you're filled on the inside. When you're alone and when you're really honest with yourself with shame and it drives you from him and the message of Zacchaeus and the message really of Jesus all throughout the Bible is that there is no sin that keeps the Savior from seeking to have a relationship, from seeking to walk in relationship with you. The truth is God knows everything about your life. Like there is no pretending, there is no hiding. He sees all the closets. He sees within everything. He knows what you did last summer and four summers ago. He knows everything broken and messed up, and he says, I want to come spend time with you, Zacchaeus, and I want to come spend time with you. Fill in the blank. That your sin does not keep Christ from seeking after you. The Bible teaches that it is not, you know, hey, there's some good people and bad people. Because there's really another flawed way that I think a lot of us think about ourselves, really, and, and kind of as it relates to God. And if the first is that flawed idea that I gotta clean myself up before God wants to know me, the second is that, man, I really don't even have that much to clean up. There's some people that are pretty messed up and, and they really need to clean up, but it's, it's kind of a lie about this. Hey, I'm not really that bad of a person. That Jesus wants to have a relationship with sinners and I love that and he also wants to have relationships with me because you know, I'm a pretty good guy and the Bible would say that's crazy. Uh, the humans think like this. They're like, hey, there's good people and there's bad people. There's people with a good heart and people with a bad heart. There's like, you know, good heart, which is me and you, of course. And then there's like the bad hearts that are like Hitler and Osama bin Laden and ISIS. Like, those are the bad apples. And the Bible doesn't teach that there's some good people and bad people. It says there's only bad people and one good guy, Jesus, who came to die for all the bad and broken people in this world. And so inside of the room, the other lie that you can buy is, hey, I need to clean everything up in my life before God could want me, is that, hey, I deserve for God to want me in all of my greatness because I'm really not that bad of a person. And Jesus said, 
I came for sinners. The only way you can have a relationship with me is to acknowledge you are a sinner. You have fallen short of God's standards. You're not a good person. Another way of saying it is the gap between you and Hitler is much smaller than the gap between you and Jesus. And he has come for sinners. And let me be abundantly clear, because there's some people in the room that you think, you've, you've kind of got this like workspace theology that, hey, if I'm good, God will accept me. If I, you know, pretty much don't steal and murder anybody, like I'll be fine. And the Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches everyone is messed up, everyone is sinners, everyone is broken. And Jesus did not just become and come to be a friend of sinners. Let me be abundantly clear. He is only the friend of sinners. He's only the friend of people who are willing to say, I need a savior. My life is messed up, no matter how good I think I am, no matter how I stack up to the person next to me, no matter how bad I think I am and how far I've fallen from the standards of my parents or my standards of my friends or my own standards, I need a savior. That is the person who, like Zacchaeus, is a candidate for God's grace. The crowd, here's the irony, the craziness of the crowd. They look at Jesus as he goes into the house of Zacchaeus and they go, what? This guy's gone in to be the home guest of a notorious sinner. The irony in that is everyone in that crowd was a sinner. Think about it. Jesus could have come out of that house and been like, look, uh, all right, Beverly, I know what you did. Had too much drink last night. You slept with somebody who wasn't your wife. And you, I feel like you got a little tipsy at prom that one time. He could have come out and pointed out everything wrong and broken in every single person in that crowd's life, but the crowd couldn't see it. They saw, like many people today see, hey, there's kind of good people like us, and then there's bad people. And we deserve God's love, but they don't. You are never more in danger of hell than when you begin to believe things like that. That you're someone who, hey, you know, if God's out there, as long as I'm a pretty good person, he should accept me. The Bible says that there is no exceptions, no exceptions to who God will accept. As long as the acceptance is that trusting in what God did, what Christ did on my behalf. He paid for it. Not because I earned it, not because I deserve it, but because he paid for it. And Zacchaeus went in and he experienced for the very first time a relationship with God that he'd given up long ago and something happened. Verse seven, but the people were displeased and they said he's gone in to be the guest of a notorious sinner. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor. And if I have cheated any people on their taxes, I will give them four times as much. There's something that happens between verse seven and eight that we're not given vision into. Jesus goes into the house, they share a meal. We don't know if it was four hours, we don't know if it was an entire day, maybe it was just an evening. But they're hanging together, and you gotta think, like, what is Zacchaeus thinking? He's looking into the eyes of probably the most compassionate person he's ever seen and will ever see. He's seeing the man that everyone crowds want to see. And they're eating a meal together and he doesn't feel condemnation and rejection and shame. We're not told any of that. And something begins to happen inside of that meal. If I was Zacchaeus, I'd be wondering, does Jesus know what paid for the food that he's eating right now? Like, does he know what I've done? Does he know who I am? And the answer would be yes. And throughout the course of that meal, something happened to Zacchaeus. And everything began to change. It's as though in the midst of the conversation, he wells up, he can't stand it anymore, and he stands up. He's like, I gotta make a toast. I'm changing everything. Jesus, I'm changing everything. 
I'm giving half of everything that I own away to the poor. If I've, if I've cheated anyone, if I've sinned or robbed against anybody, I'm not just gonna pay back what I took from them. I'm gonna go back and pay four times what I took from them originally. And everything began to change. Zacchaeus experienced the love of Christ and it changed him. The second idea really from this text is that it is love, not laws, that lead to lasting change. It's love, not laws, that lead to lasting change. What drove Zacchaeus was he encountered the love of Jesus and it drove him out of a love in response to that to extravagant ends. What do I mean by that? He just said, I'm gonna give half of everything that I owe to the poor and if I owe anybody four times, he's like, dude, if I go broke on all this, I don't even care. So I'm selling the Lambo, I'm getting rid of the camels and the chariots, whatever I got to, I'm giving it away, Jesus, because you're worth more than all of that. Think about that. Half of everything you owe, if your roommate came home tonight and they're like, hey, dude, I met Jesus, I'm giving away half of everything that I've done, can't believe it, what would you think? Some of you don't even tithe. And when you do, you're like, I feel like I'm doing a favor to God. Here's $25. Zacchaeus says, half of everything. I don't even care anymore. Clearly a man who had changed. Further extravagant with the fact that he said, I'm gonna pay back way beyond what the law requires. This was not about what the law says, it was about love. He had encountered the love of Christ and it changed him and moved him out of a love for Christ to change. What do I mean by that? In the Old Testament, if you cheated somebody, if you stole from somebody, there was a law. And it said this in Leviticus chapter six, verse one through five. It says, if you steal, you have to pay back what you stole plus one fifth. So if I steal $100, I pay back $100 plus one fifth, that's 20. So it's $120. Zacchaeus says, everybody that I stole 100 bucks from, I'm giving an additional $400 to. I'm going above and beyond, way beyond what the law being required. Think about that. I mean, this would be the equivalent of if you've ever had your car stereo stolen, somebody showing up at your door and being like, hey, sorry, stole the stereo, so here's this and here's four more. You'd be like, what? Who, who are you? And Zacchaeus, one by one, went to the people he had stolen from because it was not law that drove. This is what changes people, man. What's changed people in the room is not like they've come to church and they've got some new rules and some code that's led them to be like, oh, now I'm gonna really try to be a good person. That doesn't work. What changed Zacchaeus was love. He encountered the love of Christ and it drove him out of a response of love towards Christ. And everything began to change. Some of you inside of the room, the reason why, like, you're, if you, maybe you're here and you came with a friend and you've, like, seen their life. I hear this story all the time. Like, dude, yeah, a buddy of mine, he's been going to your church, and it's like, man, he's, like, uber Christian, like, you know, all over the top. He, he's, like, there, like, four nights a week. He, he doesn't do any of the stuff we don't. We used to, like, you know, go smoke a bowl. He's not into that anymore. It's just totally changed. Why? Is it because some new rules that he's found? No. He's found and fell in love with a savior and experienced the love of Christ that has made him go, I don't care what I have to leave behind. Everything I'm experiencing here is so much better. So if no one goes with me, I'm going. And Zacchaeus said, whatever it costs, I don't care. I'm making a change. And it was out of an overflow and response to that love that he moved. Some of you, the reason why, like Christians hate sin and the reasons why we fight against sin is not because we have to in order to have a relationship with God. It's because we have a relationship with God and we don't want anything to interrupt the intimacy that we can experience with him. So it's like, man, I'm gonna fight against anything. I'm gonna confess sin inside of my life, whether it's anger or lust, masturbation, pornography, stuff from my past. 
anything that could inhibit that because Jesus is so much better. This is how and why people change. It's not because of just some like, here, keep these 12 different rules that you have to run through. And Zacchaeus, in a moment, encounters the love of God and changes. We've seen, love changes people. We've all seen this. If you know somebody dating, if you've ever dated before, like, like you see people like adopt new habits, new hobbies, when they start dating somebody, like we've all, maybe you have a guy friend who's like, yeah, now I get pedicures. It's what we do. And, uh, you know, it's cool, man. I'm into it. And you're like, okay. And, uh, or the girl who's like, yes, I love the Cowboys. And she, it's because she started dating some guy with the Cowboys. And you're like, can you name a Cowboy? Uh, Dirk Nowinski. And uh, you're like, I don't think, I think you're just into this because he's into this. Like when people fall in love, they change. The best one of all time is particularly around guys and ladies. This, you, you may never even see this, but this is what happens. Let me tell you what happens every time a guy calls you. If he's hanging out with these buddies, dude, this is, this is gold. I'm going to try to be short here. He's hanging out. It happens to all of us, myself included. Hanging out with your buddies out the lake. Yeah, yeah, dude, I cannot believe, you know, Dak, that happened. Gosh, man, that's the worst. And then you'll call and it's like, hey, give me a sec. Oh, hi. Yeah. Um, oh, no. It's to the point where it changes them so much, we always walk away. We're like, well, we're going to give you guys a second. And we, it happens every single time you walk over there. You're like, no, I love you. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you. And it's like he goes from all of a sudden thug life to Romeo because <laughs> love changes people. Dude, that is true. It happens every time. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. Because love changes people. It leads to different behavior and different actions. It far exceeds anything the law could do. Just like in that dating relationship, like if somebody just told you, hey, I want you to like that girl, here's the rules. When you talk on the phone, you gotta talk like, you know, you're back in seventh grade, pre-puberty, and that's what you have to do. People would not do it if they didn't actually have a desire, a love, and affection for that girl. In the same way, this is why, and this is how Christians live the Christian faith and Christian life. This is why people change. This is why people begin to make decisions more in line with that, because they're like, dude, I just want more of Jesus. And I began to experience it in such a royal way. I just want more and more of that. Zacchaeus experienced it, and everything changed. It's love, not law, that leads to lasting change. Jude, the brother of Jesus. Jude has one book in the Bible. It's only one chapter long. It's a very short Bible, or a very short book. And in that chapter, he says something about the way that the Christian life is lived. Here's a guy who actually, Jesus' baby brother, you may not know that, there's two, two guys in the Bible who wrote books in the New Testament, scholars would say, are the brothers of Jesus, Jude and James. And Jude writes in the 21st verse, he says, here's what I want you to do. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. What do I do, Jude? We're waiting on God. We're trying to make sure that we live out the Christian life. How do I spend the rest of my life? Keep yourselves in the love of God. Think about that sentence from the little brother of Jesus who says, hey, hey, let me give you a secret. Keep yourselves in God's love for you. You want to be someone who actually experiences change in your life. You want to live out the Christian life. It won't come by bootstrap obedience, by trying harder. And anyone who tells you it will is lying to you. It comes by experiencing God's love, understanding how God sees you. That despite the fact that you did not earn it, you don't deserve it, that God loved and sought and seeks you. Wherever you're at right now, whatever you're going through, whatever you did today, that there's a God who's crazy in love with you. And Jude says, hey, here's what I want you to do while you wait. 
Church, for all of eternity, until Jesus comes back, or for how many thousand years, keep yourselves in God's love. And then you know what happens? You'll love because he loved you. That's what 1 John chapter 4 says. That it ends up overflowing inside of your life. Some of you, more than anything else, I hope you hear that. That you would think and operate as someone who sees themselves as your identity is so wrapped. Jesus loves me. The God of the universe, the God who created the stars and breathed all things into existence, loves me to the point where he would die on a cross for me, for you, despite everything messed up in your life. Zacchaeus experienced that love and it changed him. Verse nine says this, about to close. And Jesus responded, dude, I love this. Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. That salvation has come to this house. He's a child of Abraham basically means like, hey, he's a true child of the faith. He's one of the descendants of Abraham, the father of faith. He's one of those followers. He's a true follower. That he experienced a conversion with Jesus in that moment. And the reason I said I love it is what does he say? Salvation came to this person's house. He personifies salvation. Which is so interesting because who came to Zacchaeus' house? Jesus. The third thing we see from the story, and this is so huge for so many of you who grew up in backgrounds and denominational faiths that don't teach this, what we just see in this passage. Salvation begins and is about a person not a process. Salvation, it comes with a person, not a process. Salvation comes with a person named Jesus. It has a name, Jesus. It is not a process. It doesn't take place over you keeping sacraments over your life. The Bible teaches the message of Jesus. Hey, salvation showed up at this guy's house because that salvation is me. Salvation begins and is experienced and is about a person. It's about you knowing Jesus, not about you keeping a process over your life. Salvation is about a person Not about you doing confessional, getting baptized, keeping a certain number of sacraments, praying a certain number of times a day. It begins and it's always been about a person. And Zacchaeus encounters in a moment of faith a person. And in doing so, he encountered salvation. Everything changed. His eternity changed. His current day changed. And he changed. Christianity, to keep going along those lines, we've already said begins to take place and the process only takes place after the person and that relationship with Christ has started. And you enter into this unending, unbreakable covenant with Jesus. And then the process takes place. But the Bible says that's his responsibility, not yours. He's the one who's faithful to continue the good work that he started in you, Philippians chapter one, verse six says. And it is that relationship, that new covenant that brings about change. It's not just similar to this. Like when, um, when I got married, there was a new covenant relationship I entered into, a new person in my world and a new way, and everything changed. What do I mean by that? Practically, lots of things changed. I went from eating TV dinners and sleeping on a futon. And all of a sudden, it's like we have three meals a day, we have pillows, 
pillows. We got pillows everywhere. Anybody needs a pillow tonight, I got you. And then some. I used to be in a flag football league, men. Now I am a member of the Arboretum. And everything changes. Where you go changes, what you eat changes, what you do change, how you spend your time because there's a new person, a new covenant. That's what Christianity says happens with somebody who's encountered Jesus. This is why some of you, like you, you've come to know and trust in Jesus and it's hard for you to go back. You know why that is? Like you find yourself, you want to go back to the club or go back to the bar and hang on Friday night and it's like you can't even be who you used to be anymore. You can't even do it. You go to try to pick up a girl and you're like, hey girl, you... You have a Bible and uh, you can't even do it because you have stepped into this relationship and it has begun to change you. And the God who's there is saying, man, I've got to hold on you. I'm entering into a relationship with you because this is about a person, not a process. And for the rest of your days, I'm going to finish that work. So that's why some of you are like, dude, I can't even do it anymore. I can't even do it with the same enjoyment that I used to be able to because Jesus has gotten a hold of your life. Some of you, this is why Christianity, you would say, never worked. Because you thought it was about a process. And Christianity is about being in relationship with a person. And that is how change begins to come. The thing that stood out in addition to that is something I've never really noticed before. And I was trying to explain this to someone earlier, and so hopefully this comes out clear. But it says that Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. When I read that verse, I've always focused on, like, man, he came to save. That's what Jesus came to save lost people. It tells us something about the heart of God. He came not just to save lost people. That is a very big part, and that is clearly a part, one of the two-part system, or two-part thing of why he said he came. But he came to seek. There's not a person on the planet that God has not been, since the moment they breathed their first breath, seeking. He's all about seeking lost people, which is everyone. As bad as Zacchaeus sought to know Jesus, Jesus was far more interested in knowing him. What do I mean by that? Think about it. Zacchaeus said, man, I'm willing to climb up and and do whatever I have to in order to see Jesus. Jesus said, I'm willing to do whatever it takes, including die, in order to save Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was willing to climb up a tree to see Jesus. Jesus was willing to die on a tree to save Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus said, I'll give half of my money to the poor. Jesus said, I'll give all of my life for you, Zacchaeus. Whatever you think, whatever link to which you think, man, I'm interested in knowing God. He is far more interested in knowing you. He is far more interested and far more seeking of you because that's the heart of God. That's what he is. And no matter how far people run and no matter if they run until they die, God is seeking after lost people to know him. He's seeking after, or he did seek after Hitler every day that he was alive. He's seeking after every member of ISIS. He's seeking after every political person, depending on which side you fall who seems like the enemy. I'll tell you what God's first and biggest concern with Joe Biden and Donald Trump is, Jesus. And his biggest concern with you is the same concern that he had with Zacchaeus, is that you would know him. And he's doing everything that he can to let you know that. The truth and the irony in that whole like bag and weight situation is, uh, it's a funny thing, man. Like you, you take the bag out, and I've been told there's weight limits on the plane, so you, you can only bring certain amounts. And, uh, and so you know, they stack them in there, and they account for each person to weigh a certain amount. And the reason I say it's ironic is it's still coming on the plane. I'm taking it out of that bag, and it's going to my backpack, and it's still going on the plane. Everyone knows that, right? We all good there? 
It's a little bit like, uh, yeah, okay, I'll hold the socks. I guess I'll do that if that's going to really bring us, make this thing go down in the Pacific Ocean. But it's still coming on. They may say there's a weight limit. You can't get past here with that. Or that's too much weight. You're going to have to carry that yourself. Because we can't afford it. We can't hang in. We can't put that down there. Not, not that weight. And that is so unlike what Jesus says he is all about. In fact, he says the opposite. And I'm going to close here. I'm laying in the plane. We're about to finish. He says the opposite is true. He says that it's not that, uh, hey, you know, I'm going to carry most of it, but if there's any overages, then you're on your own. You've got to carry that onto the plane. He says, I carry all of it or none of it. I carry every sin you've ever committed, everything messed up you've ever done, or I carry none of it. There's no you carry some and I carry some halfway and you really work hard and then we can have a relationship together. Jesus says, I carry all of it or none of it. And if you're going to have a relationship, it's going to involve you saying, God, I surrender everything. You paid for every sin I've ever committed in my past. Everything I've ever done in my present, everything I'm gonna do in my future. Like you paid for all of it, God. You paid, I don't have to wonder anymore if I'm gonna have eternal life. You paid for everything. That's what the message of Jesus says. It's not whosoever achieves can have eternal life. It's whosoever receives. Jesus has eternal life. The Bible says in Romans chapter five, verses six, seven, and eight, this. This is so huge and so I'm gonna land right here because it's so applicable to all of us. Well, Paul says, and he's writing this letter, and he says, let me tell you about what God did and when he did it for you. You see, at just the right time, what is the right time, Paul? When we were still powerless, when we couldn't obey God, we didn't want to obey God, We had nothing to offer but sin to God. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will somebody die for a righteous person. So he begins to go like into an analogy, though some for a good person might possibly dare to die. In other words, like, hey, most people won't die for somebody great. Though every once in a while somebody dives on a grenade for a brother in the army or somebody does something valiant and heroic. But God shows his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The message of the Bible, the message of Zacchaeus is that all of us are like Zacchaeus. You are like Zacchaeus. You bring nothing to the table and while you were powerless, the God of the universe said, you know what time it is? It's the right time. When they can do nothing, they don't care about me, they're an enemy of God. God comes out and he says, you know what I'm gonna do for my enemies? Die for them. There is no love like this that anyone has ever heard of, ever expressed. There's no other religion in all of the world. Let me land it right here. There's no other belief system that includes anything like the love that Paul just described here. The love every page of the Bible expresses and the love that Jesus demonstrated perfectly on the cross. There is no expression of Allah is love, he will die for his enemies. There's no other belief system in the world that says God is a God who goes out and dies for his enemies, who says, hey, let's come to the battle line. Here's what we're gonna do. There's a war taking place. Here's the truce. I will die for all of you. There's no love in the world that's ever seen like that. And that the Bible says, and could it be true that the God who's there is a God who says, you know what I do for those who can do nothing for me? 
I'm so in love with them that I will lay down my life for my enemies, let alone my friends or let alone some good people. For those who reject, who will always reject me, I still die for them. The God who's there has died for sinners like you, sinners like Zacchaeus, and sinners like me. Before anything was done, before you could do anything for him. And my biggest fear is there are a lot of you in the room, candidly, you think you bring something and you have something to offer God. That you're gonna do like, hey, you know, you guys take that much luggage and I'm gonna carry on a little bit and I'm gonna do my part because it makes me feel better and I feel like that'll keep me in relationship. And you have bought a lie. The message of the gospel is before you do anything right, before you could do anything right, in order to have a relationship and be right with God, it takes you saying, man, I'm, I'm too broken and undeserving. I've fallen short of God's standard. And I'm receiving. I'm not seeking to achieve anymore. I'm receiving what God did on my behalf. Jesus didn't come to give you what you deserve. He came to give you what he deserves. And the message of Zacchaeus, the message of the New Testament, the message of the gospel and the God who's there is that you can have what he deserves, what Christ alone deserves. If you will just accept it by faith, you paid for my sin. You died on the cross, you rose from the dead, you showed the check cleared. It was more than enough. And I'm not gonna believe and put my faith in what I do, how good I am, what I haven't done, or what I did do. I'm not gonna let what I have done keep me out. I'm trusting in Jesus. And when you do, you, like Zacchaeus, become a child of Abraham, a child of faith. The one Jesus came in, like those of us who believe, to seek and to save. Let me pray. Father, I pray for any man or woman in this room who's never put their faith in what you did on the cross. You paid for their sin. You died in their place. You offer eternal life and you offer abundant life now. Tonight would be the moment that they would step off the ledge of trusting in themselves and step into a relationship with the God who's been reaching out in their direction all of their life. They wouldn't allow what they've done, their sins, how embarrassed they are, the shame, the guilt, all of those things that they feel like make them unworthy of having a relationship with God, do anything other than drive them to you. The God who said, I paid for all of it. While they were still powerless, while they were still weak, I demonstrate my love. And that yet, while they were sinners, I died because I love them. Tonight, would men and women receive that free gift would you help the parts in our hearts that still feel like we need to clean ourselves up and run from you in shame? To be overtaken by the truths that we see in the New Testament, you are God who runs towards us and calls us to walk with you and experience life and freedom. Would that message penetrate deeper into our hearts? Start with me, God. We worship you in song. Amen.